This morning we do have the opportunity to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, which is an opportunity, which is a privilege for us. And we are going to obey the Lord Jesus Christ by focusing on His death and His life and His resurrection in a unique way. Uh, a unique way that He prescribed, and that is by taking simple elements, simple everyday things like bread and wine, and acknowledging how they symbolize the giving of His life, the giving of His life for sinners like us. And this morning, during our study of God's Word, it's going to be focused specifically on preparing our hearts and getting us ready to have our celebrating of the Lord's Supper be all that it possibly could be by the grace of God. And so what we'll do this morning during these next minutes will be to focus on a number of atonement truths, I'll call them. We'll look at five atonement truths that help us to see Jesus for the great Savior that He is and that help us get ready to obey the Lord's command in celebrating what we call communion. So I'll invite you to join me as we look at these different truths about Christ's great work, about His great atonement, ultimately so that we can see Him as the great Savior that He is, and expediently for today that we can have a meaningful time celebrating the Lord's Supper, to be overwhelmed by just how great He is and what a great work He did on our behalf. Atonement truth number one, the atonement is central. The atonement is central. And when I say atonement, the atoning work of Jesus Christ is what I mean. That Jesus Christ in His life and Jesus Christ in His death and Jesus Christ in His, in His resurrection, you really can't separate His work, is central to Christianity, is central to everything, is central to the Bible, is central to our focus. The atonement is central. Seasoned theologian Roger Nicole said, and I quote, The atonement is the central doctrine, the central teaching of the Christian faith. Why would he say that? He would say that because, once again, from Genesis to Revelation, you see not only the need for atonement, if you're looking forward to the cross, you see the anticipation of the atonement, If you're looking back at the cross, you see the significance and the finality and the sufficiency of the atonement in Christ's atonement. He is absolutely correct in saying the central doctrine, the central truth of the Christian faith is the atonement. So often we allude to, so often we quote 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 has more authority than any seasoned theologian. And it says in verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins. Christ is our substitute. He is the substitutionary atonement for our sins. But before the Bible says that in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says it is a first importance, the most important reality on planet earth, the most important reality anywhere and everywhere is Christ died for our sins. Shorthand for that would be Christ is 
our atonement. There's nothing more central. There's nothing more significant than this reality. Jesus Christ came here and lived and He came here and He died and He came here and He rose again from the dead. Jesus came to do a lot of things. Jesus wasn't uh, one-dimensional. He, he had different purposes, if you will. But ultimately, He came here to be our atonement. To be an atonement for us and to pay for our sins. As we looked at last time, Jesus said, I came here to give my life as a ransom for many. That's why He came. Oh yes, He said other things like, I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. But all roads lead back to the atonement because the way He can give us life, the way He can give us abundant life that we can enjoy even now is because of His atonement. The great reality that Jesus Christ dies in place of sinners so that we can be reconciled to God is the greatest reality. I think most of us know this. But if it is the first and foremost reality, I wonder how much thought you give to it. Does the atonement of Jesus Christ have first importance in your life? Does it capture your heart? Is it your default mode when it comes to having time to think and meditate on something? Because it is what is most natural to you? Because it is most significant to you? That's how I want to be. I want it to be default mode, not in a negative sense, but in a positive sense because it is the most important thing to God. It is the most important thing to Jesus Christ. It is the most important thing in the Bible. And therefore, I want my natural affections to be supernaturally moved to thinking much of Christ and thinking constantly and over and over again about what He has done for me. After all, God says it is of first importance. And what I'm hoping this time together does is it encourages it encourages me it encourages you it encourages us to be atonement centered to be cross centered to be thinking much of Christ and what he's done for us if you're not reading books about the atonement you need to add some new books to your reading list If you're not hearing sermons about the atonement, you need to listen to different sermons. If you're not singing songs about the atonement, you need to be singing different songs. It's everything to God. It's everything to Christianity. It should therefore be everything to Christians. Always thinking about Christ and thinking about His life and about His death and His resurrection. And it becomes life-giving to us. Number two, the second second atonement truth we'll look at, 
And I'll invite you to turn to John 15 for this. I just referenced 1 Corinthians 15 for this first point. But if you turn to John chapter 15, and the second atonement truth is, the atonement is the greatest act of love we will ever know. The atonement is the greatest act of love we will ever know. This is fantastic to see what Jesus says about love. In John 15, 13, it says, Jesus speaking, greater love has no one than this. How about that for a a truth claim? Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. I emphasize for because you have that great word, that great word associated with atonement because it's the word for substitution. There is no greater love than when someone lays down their life in place of, for, as a substitute for their friends. And then Jesus goes on to say, you are my friends to his disciples. It doesn't get any better than that. The greatest act of love, the greatest demonstration of love, is giving your life for someone else, for your friends. And then he says, you are my friends. Feelings are wonderful. Feeling loved is a great thing. I think it's a gift from God to feel loved. But my feeling loved as a Christian should be based upon not the feeling, but should be based upon the fact that Jesus Christ laid down His life. It is objective. It is rooted and grounded in real life history. It is something that is done. It is something that is finished. It is something that is sufficient. It is something that is complete. And when I focus on what Christ has done in laying His life down for me as my substitutionary atonement, I know that I am loved. And I know that I am loved with the greatest love anyone could ever show me. Ever. How about that? And as a byproduct that is a great gift from God, I feel loved. If you prefer sappy sentimentalism and basing your life and your stability on that, you can have it. I don't want it. I want to know and think much of, and I want you to to also, the fact of Christ's atoning sacrifice. That is what will win the day. That is what will sustain you. That is what will cause you to give God true and and significant worship. That that is what will cause you to live a life that is Christ-exalting, Christ-honoring, 
the greatest act of love is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. It is the greatest love any of us will ever know. It doesn't change. It doesn't flex. If you want to know love, if you want to know the love of God, look to the cross. Think much of the cross. Think deeply in matters related to the cross. And you will know the love of God. And you will feel loved. Fact leading to feeling. If need be, get off the treadmill. Get off of the treadmill of feeling, hoping, hoping based upon feeling to eventually have a fact. I hate treadmills. Sorry, Dan. (laughs) I bought my treadmill from Dan. I love treadmills. Go buy a treadmill from Dan. (laughs) I hate treadmills. We have a treadmill in our basement, and I despise that treadmill. I've been on that treadmill probably four, at least four times this week, and my knees hurt, and my feet hurt, and my back hurts, and I'll be on it again this next week, and I despise that thing. But I have to be on the treadmill, or my clothes won't fit. I have to be on the treadmill. I've got to do it. It's the lesser of who knows how many evils. And so there it is, and I get on the treadmill and do my duty. But a treadmill kind of love, which is no love at all, which is shallow feelings based upon your performance or lack of, There's no way to live. You don't just need another fix. You don't just need another emotional experience. What you need is to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, and to so focus on Him and His finished work on the cross that He will be glorified as He ought to be, and you will be sustained as He intended. What a great atonement truth the love of God is. Number three, another atonement truth that will, that will help us to see Jesus for who He is and to love Him appropriately and worship Him as we ought to and also to prepare us even this morning for communion. The atonement is substitutionary. The atonement is substitutionary. And I've already mentioned this. I can't help but mention this as we've been talking about the atonement. But the idea is, the reality is, that Jesus not only died, Jesus died, as the Bible says over and over again in so many different ways, for sinners. In fact, as we look at Jesus, we even see that He lived for sinners. Because you can't separate His life from His death. And for that matter, you can't separate His resurrection because He rose again from the dead for sinners as well. That Jesus is our great substitute. That He did what we could not do. That He did what we would not want to do. That He did what we would never want to do. He did it for us. He did it on our behalf. 
If you turn to Isaiah 53, we'll be there at least twice this morning. Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, looking forward to the death of Jesus hundreds of years ahead of time is a great substitutionary atonement text that God had His Son die in our place so that His just requirements would be satisfied. But as you're turning there, I've already referenced it, but you may want to mark down or jot down Mark 10.45. Again, that Jesus didn't come here to be served, but to serve and to give His life, the Bible says, as a ransom for many. Substitution. He did it in our place, on our behalf. We're looking at his substitutionary death. Then I want to look at his substitutionary life, even if it be briefly. Isaiah 53, 5. We'll just look at this one verse and then we'll look at more later. But it says there in verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. Notice the emphasis on substitution. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on Him. For, 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 and you quite frankly see it all over the place in Isaiah 53. And, and I challenge you to look for it. Read your Bible looking for the reality of substitution. Read your New Testament looking for the emphasis on substitution. And all of a sudden, it starts showing up all over the place. For our sins. In our place. Theologians of yesteryear would talk about in our stead. Jesus came and He came and He died not as merely a good example, though it was a great example. He came and He died as an actual substitute for our sins, dying in our place. The just, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, the just, what? You know the verse. For the unjust in our place. It's a great reality of substitutionary atonement. The substitutionary death of Jesus. And the substitutionary death of Jesus brings us forgiveness. Because Jesus dies in our place, God judges Jesus even as we read today when He cries from the cross and He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father is judging the Son, but He's not judging the Son because the Son is a sinner. He's the just one, 2 Corinthians 5 says. He's judging the Son in our place, the just for the unjust. So that we can be forgiven, that we can be pardoned. Ephesians 1.17 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Matthew 26.28, a communion text we might say, This is My blood of the covenant, Jesus said, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. You've got substitution for forgiveness. Matthew 26, verse 28. Jesus died a substitutionary death so that we could be forgiven, so that we can be reconciled to God. How great is that? How amazing is that? But I also want you to know, as we're talking about substitution, as we're talking about the substitutionary work of Jesus, He didn't just come to die for us as our substitute. He also came to live for us as our substitute. Jesus came to die so that we could be forgiven. But remember, God doesn't just require that we have no sin. 
He does require that. But remember, God requires righteousness. So if you're just forgiven, you have zero. You need righteousness. All of this is at the forefront of my thinking because I just uh, wrote an article for the next post that's coming out, so I'll cut it short and you can read about it. But we've been seeing in Romans lately, in Romans chapter 3, in Romans chapter 4, and we'll see it in Romans chapter 5, this reality of justification, that God declares sinners, what? Righteous, even though they're not, based upon the merits of Jesus, who is righteous. We need righteousness. God knows that we need righteousness, and so He declares us righteous, so we are fit for heaven, based upon the perfect righteousness of His Son. This happens through faith in His Son. And now I have righteousness. Now I can be the friend of God. Now I can truly be fit for heaven because I have the righteousness of Christ. How did I get the righteousness of Christ? I got the righteousness of Christ by Jesus coming here and living a righteous life for me as my substitute. Folks, be impressed with the death of Jesus that it brings you forgiveness. But don't overlook the need to be impressed with the life of Jesus that brings you righteousness. In Romans chapter 5, in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, listen to this. It says, Through the obedience of the One, speaking of Jesus, the many will be made righteous. You see, I not only need His death, I need His life of obedience. Jesus came here and lived for some 33 years. Perfectly and in every way necessary, fulfilling God's law. What did Jesus do for 33 years? He loved God with all of His heart and with all of His soul and with all of His strength and with all of His mind, which is the greatest commandment because it summarizes everything in all of the commandments, right? He did Deuteronomy 6, which is where that is found, perfectly for 33 years. He obeyed God in His life perfectly and He did so so that I could be legitimately justified. So I could be legitimately declared righteous because He lived that life for me. I am so impressed with the death of Jesus and rightfully so. But sometimes I forget that I need to be impressed with the life of Jesus as we celebrate the Lord's Supper even today. If need be, add a new dimension to your appreciation. As you live your Christian life of worship to God, be thinking much of Jesus and His death. Yes, please, I'm not suggesting that you take away from that, but please think much of Jesus as Jesus in His life, in His death, and yes, in His resurrection. He came to live for me to obey the law for me so that I would have righteousness. And He came to die for me so that I would have forgiveness. He came to rise for me so that I would have life. And now we're into Romans 6. I think John Piper does a good job in summarizing this and I'll 
move forward after this. But listen to how he puts this together. So there are two reasons why it is not abominable for God to justify the ungodly. Romans 4, 5 says God justifies. He declares righteous. He justifies the ungodly. Well, that seems like an ungodly thought if it weren't for these two reasons. First, the death of Christ paid the debt of our unrighteousness. Second, the obedience of Christ provided the righteousness we need to be justified in God's court. Summarizing in another way, he says, the demands of God for entrance into eternal life are not merely that our unrighteousness be canceled, but that our perfect righteousness be established. You need Jesus' death and you need Jesus' life. Because you not only need to be forgiven, you need righteousness in order to be friends with this God who is righteous. This is justification. How great Jesus is. How great Jesus is to be my substitute. What great assurance comes from that. Let's move on now to a fourth atonement truth. The atonement atones. The atonement atones. You might be thinking, what in the world do you mean by that? That is to say, as Jesus dies an atoning death, a satisfying death, and satisfying the requirements of His Father, as the one who lived the perfect life and now dies his perfect death, as he dies to satisfy, to atone the wrath of God, the justice of God, he actually atones. And you say, why are you even mentioning this? It sounds redundant, if not ridiculous, to say his atonement atones. Well, I need to make the point because sometimes we're under the illusion that His atonement doesn't actually atone. It just makes atonement possible. When in fact, if you think that way, you will not think of Christ and His cross as great as it really is. Because the Bible doesn't even get close to teaching that His atonement makes atonement possible. The Bible teaches with great clarity that His atonement atones. And now all of a sudden, if it's not atonement potentially, I'm not going to give potential praise. If it's an atonement that actually atones, I'm going to give praise that is actual praise. And now my my security and my stability in Christian living is not going to be that one that is potential. It is going to be one that is actual. And the list could go on. Let's look at some texts. Romans chapter 3, for starters, some atonement texts. In Romans chapter 3, we'll look at that. We'll look at Hebrews chapter 2. We'll have to really get things moving. 1 John 2, 1 John 4, Galatians 3, 1 Peter 1. The atonement atones. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. And again, remember, this is getting us ready to to obey the Lord's command and to to understand and to think and to appreciate and to worship God in a unique and special way as He has prescribed in communion. But we're thinking about what this really is all about. 
In verse 25 of Romans 3, it says, Whom God displayed publicly, speaking of His Son Jesus, as a propitiation, or if you have the NIV, atonement, satisfaction. And notice I've had to write in my my margin, real and true, not potential. As a propitiation in His blood through faith, this was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. As a propitiation, as an atonement. It doesn't have potentiality in the margin. Well, mine does, because I wanted to see that that's not what it is. Listen to Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, to make satisfaction, to make atonement. To satisfy, not to potentially satisfy God, but actually when Jesus is dying on the cross, He is atoning, He is propitiating, He is satisfying the just requirements of God. 1 John 2.2 2 says, He Himself is the propitiation. Real, actual propitiatory sacrifice, not potential propitiation. 1 John 4.10 And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atonement for our sins. Actual, not potential. If we move from that word group to another word group, to the word group of redemption, which is certainly related, Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ didn't make us on the cross redeemable. He redeemed, if you will, us. He redeemed. His redemption was a redemption that actually redeems. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things. Jesus didn't die a potential death. He died an actual death. An actual satisfaction has been made. An actual atonement has been made. An actual redemption has been made. A song that is becoming one of my favorite songs is this song, Hallelujah, What a Savior by Philip Bliss. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. But then it becomes more significant. It becomes more atonement-centered. It becomes significant when it says, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Here's my favorite line. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Sealed... My pardon. How? With His blood. It's a real atonement. If that's not my favorite, I think it is. There's a close rival. I don't even have to go to another song. It's the next stanza. Guilty, vile, and helpless we spotless lamb of God was he. What's the next line? 
Full atonement? Can it be? And you know what his answer is, even though it's not stated in the song. Hallelujah! What a Savior! Full atonement. Yeah. He propitiated. He atoned. We don't have time, but you can write down Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Be another great text about this. Probably the text that really started shifting my mind to think about these things more profoundly. Praise be to God that the atonement atones. It's actual, real, and you know, like never before, again, that should just ignite your praise to God. It is sure, it is done, it is complete, it is lacking nothing. And now finally, number five, fifth atonement truth that helps us to see Jesus for the great one that he is, that helps to get our hearts ready even now for celebrating communion. The atonement is prophetic. The atonement is prophetic. And that is to say, if you go way back even to Genesis, early chapters, you have anticipation of atonement. You have provision of atonement. All looking forward to a greater final atonement. And then we move our way through the Old Testament and that there are those high points and there are those significant points like Isaiah 53. Let's go ahead and look at that now again. We see it's prophetic. This is something that God had been promising. This is something that God had been promising in, in, in micro form, if you will, way, way, way back in Genesis. And then it's highlighted in certain Psalms. And it's highlighted in certain books of the Bible. And then the great one of all great ones, so to speak, is Isaiah 53. I remember talking to, to a Jewish man who had been converted and become a follower of Jesus, seeing Jesus as Messiah, as Messiah, And he told me about how he read Isaiah 53 to another Jewish friend of his. He didn't show him what he was reading. He said, I want to read something to you. And and he was a good friend. He said, I want you to tell me what I'm reading. And he read it to him and he said, well, I don't really know what you just read, but it was obviously one of your Gospels. Well, it is a Gospel, all right. (laughs) But it's not a New Testament Gospel. It's an Old Testament Gospel because it's talking about this future coming substitute who would atone for sins. Let's go ahead and look at a significant portion of this as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Verse 3 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like no one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, And our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. 
Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had not done because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Yes, it is a gospel, all right. Atonement is prophetic. You'll see it when you read your Old Testament. It's also prophetic now. Because even now, as we take bread and wine, as Jesus commanded, and we eat and we drink and we think upon Him and the giving of His life, as Tyler mentioned earlier and as we will see in 1 Corinthians 11, we do this we focus on the atonement of Jesus with a view toward the future, with a prophetic view because He Himself said we are to do this until He comes again. And so it's prophetic in the past Old Testament looking toward the cross. You have atonement-centeredness. While Jesus is here, He is certainly atonement-centered. During the early church, they are atonement-centered. The Bible is atonement-centered in the New Testament as well. And now, for the ages to come, until He returns, we are to be atonement-centered, thinking about all that He's done. Yes, indeed, it is of first importance. And if we were to take the time and we were to take a glimpse and to look into heaven like in the book of Revelation, we will see that even into eternity future, prophetic in that sense, we will be atonement-centered. Christ is our all. Christ is our everything. Christ is our King. Christ is the author and the perfecter of the faith. He is the Lamb who is worthy. He is the Lamb who was slain. He is our righteousness. He is grand. And so we celebrate His life and we celebrate His death and we celebrate His resurrection for us. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You for this privileged time that we have together thank you for Jesus as he came to love us as he came to demonstrate his great love in a significant and tangible way that in every way necessary he satisfied your justice that he forgave us based upon his atonement that He justified us based upon His atonement. We love Christ and we love to exalt Him together. And now, Lord, as we obey Him, we want to exalt Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.